This program is brought to you by PLI, the Practicing Law Institute. To learn more about this podcast, visit pli.edu slash pro bono podcast. Just realizing that if you could be that person who gives that support to help the client process these experiences from their past and within the prison system, it's so valuable, really so valuable. Sometimes you take a CLE program and a speaker just captures your imagination. You just want to know more about their approach to the world. And luckily, if you host a podcast, you have a platform to get them to tell you more. This is how I felt when I saw Nefertiti Alexander in the PLI program on trauma-informed lawyering. Nefertiti is a litigation partner at Kasowitz Benson Torres in New York City, and she has incorporated a trauma-informed approach into all of her work, whether it is commercial or pro bono. And when Nefertiti sat down to talk with us, she spent some time explaining her approach to working with all of her clients And then she told us about a particularly intense parole case that she and her colleagues handled pro bono for a trauma survivor. Welcome to Pursuing Justice, The Pro Bono Files, a podcast from PLI, the Practicing Law Institute, in which lawyers and clients talk candidly about their pro bono experiences. I'm your host, Alicia Aiken, and for 15 years, I was a legal services attorney in Chicago. Now, I'm a principal at Danu Center for Strategic Advocacy, a national organization supporting advocates and mission-based organizations in their own pursuit of social justice. I'm also a faculty fellow at PLI, where I get to work on special projects like this podcast. My practice focuses on commercial litigation, uh, particularly in intellectual property space, uh, in federal and state court, as well as in arbitration. One thing that I think is not um, as focused on in the legal sphere is just how important it is to manage all the emotional aspects of, of practice, from the motivations of the parties to the interest of the judge and the clerks. Oh, you have a pretty impressive pro bono practice for someone who is also a commercial litigator, which is its own intense job. Tell us more about your pro bono practice. Yes, I was very focused on trying to take on cases where it might be difficult for someone who is in public interest to take on. Um, Some of the larger cases that someone who was facing juvenile life without parole sentence, some impact cases um, relating to racial justice. I've tried to really leverage the resources of the private firms that I've worked with, um, as well as the skill and expertise of legal aid organization. So take us back. Where did your interest in pro bono get started? You know, I come from a large family. I'm the first in my family to pursue a college degree and, you know, obviously to continue to a graduate degree. And I found that I was entering a lot of spaces that no one in my family really had any information about. 
And I just always saw myself as someone who could be a bridge between, uh, you know, these commercial and business spaces and marginalized communities um, and experiences that I had growing up. And so when I went to law school, I really delved into these topics in terms of what does the client bring to the table? What does the attorney bring to the table? All of these power dynamics and different ways of lawyering. And um, that really inspired my, my journey into working in the private sphere while maintaining a pro bono practice. So you've, you've mentioned it already in the few minutes we've been talking about kind of the humans involved in law and, and what do the clients bring to the table. What is your approach to thinking about working with the humans who are involved in the cases that you do? You know, when I'm working with any client, I've heard that a lot of times they connect with me because I'm really able to get to that human story where I'm just like, oh, so you were robbed, <laughs> right? But meanwhile, it's this really complicated story about, you know, there was this invention and new technology and there was a licensing agreement. And, and then the person who, you know, was aware of the information came out with a competing product, right? There's all this stuff. But at the end of the day, you know, what is going to resonate? And I have found that really being able to develop that rapport with the client so that you you get the most compelling story. You just did such a nice job of crystallizing something that, you know, so much of our training, especially as litigators, is you are kind of downloading facts from clients and you're trying to figure out how are you going to translate those to be good for getting legal relief and good, deliver those to the courts. But you just crystallized that while that is all important and matters, there is also another direction where what the client needs to hear from you is that you see what happened to them. And so you saying, yes, I need to know what was the licensing agreement and what was the process it went through and what did this person do or not do. But the client needs to hear, gosh, it sounds like you were robbed. That's exactly it. And, and I think uh, we have to just think we're trained to be part of the legal system. But for people who don't have that training, it's mm -hmm. foreign. It's scary. <laughs> Whether you and we we even have this idea of just like, oh, if businesses are fighting. Right. But those businesses are full of people who have different roles who, you know, this lit litigation could be life changing for them, could be uh, catastrophic for the company. There's still a lot involved, whether it's commercial or if it's an individual who's worried about their housing, the litigation process ex itself on top of any trauma or difficult experiences that someone has can sort of compound that um, situation for them. So I think, you know, part of the process is helping people feel that you you understand, you hear them. You know, the exact mm -hmm. story that you get from them may not be what you tell the judge, right? You have to craft right. what a message would be, but to kind of give people that space um, to have their full emotional experience and to have uh, their stories be be heard and, and recognized, I think is, is really important part of the process so that the litigation on top of everything else is not causing more, more harm. You know, there's only certain things we can control for, but at least the interaction with the client, um, let it be something that is empowering for the client. Yeah. And so we invited you here because I heard you on PLI's panel about trauma-informed lawyering. And I was so struck by the way you talked about using a trauma-informed approach in all of your work, including your vast amount of pro bono. 
So can you tell me, what do you mean when you say a trauma-informed approach? What does that mean for you? When I refer to a trauma-informed approach, what that means to me is really understanding the one, how prevalent trauma is, and two, being able to identify all the different sorts of threats, actual or feared, that a client has experienced that can impact the two people who are in the room, you know, having a meeting. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, someone comes to you not just in, you know, their present state, but really everything that has happened to them. Um, And so a client might come to you with a certain type of injury, but everything that they have faced in their past can impact their willingness to open up to you and could have affected some of the conduct and things that they've experienced in their life. And so just this idea of this is an onion that you have to unfold just really recognizing the fullness of human experience that people are, are coming to you, you know, for a particular problem. This is why I wanted to talk to Nefertiti so badly. The idea of trauma-informed lawyering is too often discussed only among lawyers who represent victims of violent crime. I even saw this happen in legal aid where we would talk about trauma-informed lawyering for domestic violence clients and ignore the issue for eviction clients. Nefertiti understands a couple of important things. Number one, trauma can come from any intense event that threatens or causes harm. The event doesn't have to be violent and the harm doesn't have to be bodily injury. And number two, Clients are people, and more people than we realize have experienced trauma that impacts how they engage with the world and how they engage with their lawyer. Trauma-informed lawyering means caring about the client's experiences, both in their life and in their work with you, the lawyer. A client might come to you for a commercial issue, but if they're facing a family (laughs) conflict at the same time, that might affect whether they can get there on time. That can affect whether they trust you. There's just a lot going on. And if we only think, okay, the client is here, let me just quickly write down whatever I can about this this incident. You know, you can you can lose a lot and you can realize that there's some missing pieces in terms of developing that that trusting relationship with the client. And so when when I think about mm-hmm. trauma informed practice, it's kind of being able to think about and identify the traumas and negative experiences and challenges that a client has and allowing that to help craft how the relationship is going to work and then also the strategies that you can employ. You don't always take the most aggressive stance. Sometimes the client wants to maintain a relationship with the other side. Right? You have to like really have a, a kind of broader view of what the client's goals are Um, what is to be achieved and and what relationship you're going to have going forward. Just kind of, you know, some of the aspects of what I think of in terms of trauma-informed practice. Yeah. And how did you first learn about this idea of having a trauma-informed practice? I would say that when I started my legal career, 
I sort of knew that certain skills that I had were valuable in terms of the, you know, empathy and really good listening skills. And I think all of those things help inform a trauma-informed practice, even though I didn't understand it as its own area. I Mm -hmm. later learned more about just trauma from my own experience and my own healing journey and sort of just the intersection of my work and learning about trauma, I think has formed a more kind of holistic practice where I can, you know, specifically learn more and I certain strategies, but I think it was, you know, a part of the the way that I interact with people in the world and also learning more about trauma, how prevalent it is, and how a trauma-informed practice can help in many different areas, including um, in my career in lawyering. It's funny because it doesn't surprise me at all to hear you say that you were someone who came with skills, like with instincts that were excellent and with the instinct that you should listen and the instinct that you should use empathy. And then over the course of your work and your life experiences, somebody has offered a framework that you were able to say, yes, that's that that feels right, because that feels like, like what, what I've been doing. Uh, but some of what I'm I'm interested in thinking about is how do we help people who maybe don't walk in with those natural instincts to get good or better at a trauma-informed approach? I think some of our training wants us to believe that we are just these very technically proficient, (laughs) the lawyer is very neutral, the client is just a mess (laughs) kind of (laughs) story. And it's like we (laughs) all are very complicated and have a lot of things that impact the way we think. We have a very particular perspective. We can have blind spots. And and so I, I think just... Anyone um, reflecting on, you know, themselves um, as an, a lawyer mm-hmm. and seeing the client and their sort of full human experience and not in a transactional way can sort of learn these strategies and move toward um, applying really practical ways of making sure people feel heard, adjusting their mindset in terms of realizing even if the client has faced challenges, those challenges often result in the client building up some resilience, some character, some insights that can be helpful. So I I do think that it it can be taught. You really listen to the client. You really put, you know, ground rules on the table. You really create a safe environment for people. And I think a lot of that is just like this idea of psychological safety. And there are things, there are best practices there are methods that people can learn that people have found really helpful for creating that kind of space. So what are some of those best practices? I think taking the time to think from the client's perspective about mm-hmm. the litigation, the legal system, the facts of the case, you know, trying to go beyond your sort of limited view to see, you know, from the client's perspective, maybe even coming to your office can be anxiety provoking, right? So I think some of the strategies is trying to create a predictable environment, right? Even Mm. just letting the client know what they can expect. You know, they'll have to go through the security desk and then we're going to have a meeting that's this long and this is what we're going to cover in the meeting. And trying to create some predictability, some stability, 
some safety, but part of that is always being able to ask questions to find out what makes your client feel safe, (laughs) right? Maybe the first meeting Mm -hmm. you don't have, you know, an eight-member team, right? Maybe you meet in person, you're going to meet your key contact on the team and just realizing all that it takes to kind of build that rapport, make someone feel safe. And, And I think part of that is also, you know, listening to the client. Yes, you have your agenda, but asking, how are you? You know, I've gone to visit and for pro bono clients, visit clients in prison, and you can have a sense of what you want to cover. But the first thing you you want to find out is what happened since the last visit? What happened this morning? Right. Your client is incarcerated and dealing with correction officers, other incarcerated individuals. Right. And and sometimes you go into that meeting and you have your idea of the, what the first 30 minutes are going to look like. And when you talk to the client, they need something totally different from you. And that has to be OK. So sometimes it can take a little bit longer to get what you want. But if you have as a long term goal developing this relationship, you have to know if someone you know, attacks your client. You have to know if your client witnessed violence and it triggered a response speak because they have intimate partner violence in their history, right? You you have to know all of that. And to think that people can just put those emotions aside and just follow your agenda, you know, is just, I think, not effective. <laughs> Which is interesting, because I think everything you're saying is spot on, but it does run against the grain of some of the our professional stories of lawyering, that lawyers don't do emotion, that lawyers know how to cut to the chase, that... Uh, lawyers are going to, you know, translate your story to something that's going to cause you to win and that that's their job and, they, and they're and they not supposed to be mucking about in other areas. Even something like you saying, don't overwhelm the client with eight people at the first meeting. I can imagine a version of that where people think you want to show the client there's a huge team on their side. But it is absolutely rational that most humans, even corporate executives, would, upon first meeting, probably prefer not to feel like they are being assessed and judged by eight strangers. I think that having that conversation and and knowing your client, at least to ask, do you want the full team there? And even if they say yes, they might not realize, okay, we're going to do 15 minutes with just the two of us so I can, Uh right? And then we're going to invite the rest of the team in for the rest of the meeting, right? And it's just like, sometimes people don't know what they need. They don't know what will make them feel more safe because they don't realize when you say eight people all have laptops (laughs) and like be in suits and look really intimidating, (laughs) right? Right? They don't don't always know what you're offering or what they could get. So I think, you know... Asking mm-hmm. the questions, thinking ahead uh, in terms of what what can make someone feel a bit more secure, I think is is worth it. And I like how nuanced your approach is. Things like, yes, I want to meet the whole team. Great. Let's just get to know each other for 15 minutes first. And that's not a either or approach. That is a nuance and adjustment to make multiple things possible in the same meeting. Of course, Changing the norms of lawyering isn't always going to be easy. I asked Nefertiti to talk about challenges she has experienced along the way. What has been unexpectedly difficult about trying to implement a trauma-informed approach in your work? 
I, I do think some of it is unlearning some of the, the legal training where you, you want to just get from point A to B. And when you're using mm-hmm. a trauma-informed approach, even with running a case team, sometimes you have to go A to C to G <laughs> and finally get to B, right? Because the idea that you want to make sure that folks on the train are ready to go to that destination with you, right? It's very much a collaborative exercise, whether it's you with your team, whether it's you with the client, it's not just your idea of what would be the most and what you think might be the most efficient route. So maybe slowing down can actually speed things up because you develop that rapport where the person feels like, if I need to take time to think, this person is going to be patient with me. If I want to talk about something else first, that's going to be okay. Um, right. right. And just thinking through, you know, sometimes just that straight line might not actually be the fastest, but it's, it's hard. It's hard mm-hmm. because you do have more than one case, everyone's time is really valuable. You don't want to waste the client's time. You don't want to make things more difficult than they, they need to be. So it's definitely like that constant balance of thinking about what should you do to kind of respect the process and then also to get the result that you want. Nefertiti shared an example of a pro bono matter where she felt trauma-informed lawyering was an important part of helping the client. She told us about her team's work during the height of the COVID pandemic with a young woman who was in prison and had experienced violent trauma in her life. I worked with a client who was facing a parole hearing. I was working with a legal aid organization who you know, brought the case to us. And the client was convicted of identity theft and stealing clothing items. And so, you know, we're already going Mm. into this with this idea of, you know, the injury that she's faced being convicted for a number of years for stealing clothing items. And this this idea of over-criminalization and like, how do you get to that point where were all the missteps where she did not get the support that she needed? I'm not sure how many people who listen know the kind of um, over-criminalization and over-sentencing that people can experience for things like writing a bad check or retail theft. Um, So how many years was this client sentenced to? Almost four. And so, you know, We went into that representation just thinking, you know, what was the end goal, which was for her to be released. She had previously gone before the parole board and was denied and actually had a very serious emotional response during that hearing. So we knew our job was to be able to help her advocate for herself um, before the parole board. And, you know, some of the things that, you know, I did was use those first sessions um, with her to share about myself, let her know what the process was going to look like, help her feel mm-hmm. supported. Um, because clearly we, we had a meeting within the prison system, you know, guards are outside the door. Also with COVID, glass between us, you know, at the table. It's really hard to Mm -hmm. develop this level of comfort 
where you have to prepare someone to tell their own story before the parole board. You know, what kind of messages has our client heard about herself, right? Right. And then there's the issue of parole board wanting you to come in and give them a beautifully told story about how you're so much better now after you have been incarcerated in an inherently abusive and coercive situation. It is entirely predictable that whatever issues somebody brought with them when they came into the prison system, they're going to decompensate while they're there and and likely feel worse. But then you have a parole board saying, prove to us how you're better. What happens in terms of the criminalization and the process of being incarcerated, (laughs) making things worse and making it near to impossible for you to advocate for yourself in a, in a clear way. And, and, and even if there has been tremendous growth, being able to communicate that by yourself, what resources does she have to put her story within the, the context that would resonate with the parole board? And just realizing that if you could be that person who gives that support to help the client process these experiences from their past and within the prison system, so valuable, really so valuable. Um, something else that we did mm-hmm. with that um, yeah. client was you're also going before the parole board. The trauma experienced by Nefertiti's client had impacted the client deeply. When people have unprocessed trauma, they can experience something called emotional flooding, where stressful situations cause all of the emotions to overwhelm them at once. And being asked to think about things that happened in the past can often trigger flooding. When you are flooded with emotions, It is extraordinarily difficult to present a calm, thoughtful presentation. You know, the kind of presentation parole boards are looking for in a hearing. Now, there are great tools that trauma survivors can use to learn to make sense of their past experiences and to help them move forward in their lives. There is a well-known book, The Body Keeps Score, by Bessel van der Kolk, and many trauma recovery workbooks. Ideally, prisons would offer people those tools as part of rehabilitation, but too often, the resources are just unavailable. So sometimes, trauma-informed lawyering means filling in the gaps left by other systems. You're expected to be able to advocate for yourself and speak clearly and right and it's just like okay but then the waiting list for the trauma course <laughs> is years long right like, so the resources to actually be able to do this are just not there um so we ended up actually sending our client the body keeps score other trauma materials so that she could work through the materials herself and we could talk about it and she actually ended up sharing some of the resources with people who were in her unit. And it's just the idea of like making access to this information, um, I feel like is just just so important. And right by the end of it, she was able to like recraft her story, able to think about boundaries 
after we were able to help her submit um, materials to the board and she successfully was given a release date. What do you think was the difference between the parole hearing that she did without your assistance and the parole hearing that she did with your assistance? I think that the 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 difference was that way that she viewed herself and able to see how she survived and and thrived despite all the kind of societal failures, you know, failures of people who should have been there to support and and guide her and to see how much she had overcome and to be able to do the internal work to think about what is my life going to be like on the outside. And so we were able to, you know, assist the work she was already doing in terms of figuring out where would she work and where would she live and like really being able to express that vision of what she'll be able to achieve on the outside and be able to like paint Mm -hmm. that picture for the parole board she was able to do. It's a win for the client. She has a release date to leave prison, but it is also a win because she learned important techniques for managing her trauma and advocating for herself. Trauma-informed lawyering means strengthening the client to achieve her own wins with support from the legal team. But of course, nothing in life is ever that simple. The path to recovering from trauma is never straight, and the realities of prison life present a constant challenge to that recovery. Too quickly, this client's release date was at risk of being revoked because of a disciplinary charge. She ended up having trauma, traumatic issues, um, a traumatic episode with a correctional officer, received misconduct tickets, and Mm -hmm. we ended up uh, representing her at a disciplinary hearing as well as a rescission hearing where her parole date was at risk. So it was a a bit of a a journey which could be very scary and and feel disempowering, right? Like to be denied and then to get a release date and then not to get support and have these issues, right? It's, It's really amazing sometimes to just see how our clients are able to really draw on internal resources and and have hope in situations that, and us being able to like really not judge her, right? Like that would have been such an easy time to just say, oh, we did this work. Like, how could you have this incident? Like you should have avoided all, you know, issues like this. But to, to recognize the real life circumstances that are facing our client and be there to be supportive and to help strategize and to listen to her version of the story, right? We could also say, okay, we don't, that's not going to help, right? Mm -hmm. So definitely having to listen to the story, work within the confines of the prison system to have her give another compelling, compelling presentation and for us to be able to also advocate on her behalf so she could be released um, has been really, really rewarding part of the process for uh, the rest of the team at, at Kazowitz that, you know, were so, you know, invested in, in her success. Yeah. Was there anything, I don't know, specific that you needed to do to support both yourself and your team when that disciplinary charge came down? Because I can imagine that's really hard on the team because you just quote unquote won by getting a parole date and then something happened and it would be real easy to say, well, the client doesn't appreciate what we already did or the client 
you know, some people say made her own bed. Uh, and I guess our work was for not like those are you all kind of reactions that um, I've seen people have in situations like that, where it feels like the client, quote, did something that undid your hard work. How did your team manage the feelings that you might have had when that happened? Yeah, I think, you know, it was really complicated. And and I think, you know, part of my job with my team and my job with my client is not to unload <laughs> all of my complicated emotions on, on them is to reduce their uh, anxiety. And so, you know, I think we did kind of a good job of the whole team kind of being on on board and really understanding what the client has gone through and being able to use that trauma-informed lens with the new situation to think about how did this happen and, and what is going on. And so I think being able to put things in context and, you know, being a team where it wasn't just the partner who went to the prison, right? The, you know, other people on the team also developed that um, personal relationship and were, you know, able to meet the meet the client. And so, you know, we were all on the same page with knowing that the client needed to hear our unwavering support and needed mm-hmm. to, like, keep her focus and not get into trouble again. And I think all the work that we had done to build rapport with the client where I could say, listen, this cannot happen again, right? I could have that straightforward conversation, but it's not judgment. It's, you know, it's coming from a place of we support you. We also have a relationship where we can talk straight and we can say, all right, this is how we're going to navigate this situation. You know, this person talks to you, you ignore them. You do not engage. Don't react until we talk to you. And just having, you know, things that allow us to try to create more that security, try to create mm-hmm. that stability, right? Right, right. But because of all the work you had built up the relationship, you could actually deliver instructions like that, which there are plenty of lawyers who will say to their clients, "This can, don't do that. Don't let it happen again. But they don't do the work of building the relationship so that the client can see it as coming from a place of partnership and respect as opposed to a place of paternalism or ego. At no point, Should we forget the conditions under which Nefertiti and her team were handling this already challenging case? It was COVID. So much of being trauma-informed involves being attuned to people and their nonverbal communications. But during COVID, you could not be in a room with the client or the judge during the hearing. And that makes it real hard to pick up on what's happening for them. And so that was just a case where we really, you know, as a team, we had to adapt, where I had to develop this relationship while, you know, across the table, over the phone. We even had a disciplinary hearing where I represented her by phone, you know, had other associates, you know, putting on witnesses that we could not see (laughs) and trying to navigate a process that's really emotional. And there was a point where our client, you know, did Mm -hmm. get emotional and having to help ground the client and kind of deal Mm -hmm. with a a proceeding that is just very isolating to have to represent your client and not be sitting right next to them. It takes, it takes a lot of uh, being able to, to, to think on your feet, think about how the client is feeling and, and how you can adjust and adapt the litigation as well as, you know, on your feet with your representation. And were you able to protect the release date? In the disciplinary hearing? 
she was released about a week or two after after our presentation. And it was really, you know, there was risk that she mm-hmm. could have uh, stayed in uh, a, a lot longer based on the, you know, misconduct charges that mm-hmm. we thought were unfairly brought against her, but it was really an up, an uphill battle to gather information and to really to represent her in that process. Um, and do you know how is she doing since her release? As far as we know, um, she's been getting all of the resources that she's just thriving. And we actually, you know, had a, you know, a bit of a, a ceremony and she was able to uh, attend and oh, it's <laughs> like the most, yeah, you are just like beaming and just glowing. Mm-hmm. Um, honestly, every time we left the prison, we were sad to have to leave her there. And mm-hmm. so just to see her in society was with family and um, building herself back up again, you know, with support um, has been really, really rewarding. You know, when we're working in the, you know, private context with uh, other lawyers and just this idea that even the people you work with, right, that we have this idea that the pro bono client or the trauma survivor is someone who is outside somewhere. But, you know, we, we work in, you know, these organizations where the person sitting next to you, you don't know what they experienced in their childhood. You don't know what they're experiencing now. And just to you know, be, be kind and to be human and to realize that, you know, people have had like long journeys to, to get to where they are and they don't just drop all of that, you know, at the door when they, when they walk in. So I think it's really important for that kind of self-reflection exercise and how we run our, um, law firms. And, you know, if we, because if we can't do that work, it's hard for us to empower our associates and team members to do that with our clients. And just mm-hmm. to see how, you know, a lot of these strategies can help us internally as lawyers amongst ourselves and also with our clients. If you'd like to learn more about being a trauma-informed lawyer, You can start by checking out PLI's program on trauma-informed lawyering. We will also link to resources from the Trauma-Informed Legal Advocacy Project, which is a resource kit created by the National Center on Domestic Violence, Trauma, and Mental Health. No matter what kind of law you practice, there is a space for more humanity and more compassion in how you engage with clients, witnesses, colleagues, and the world at large. Thanks for listening to Pursuing Justice, The Pro Bono Files, a podcast from PLI, the Practicing Law Institute. This production is dedicated to the pro bono and public interest lawyers working to improve access to justice. A special thanks goes to our producer, Daniel Pinitz, as well as our host, Alicia Aiken. Please note that the views and opinions expressed during this podcast represent those of the individuals being interviewed and not necessarily those of PLI. PLI is a nonprofit learning organization dedicated to keeping attorneys and other professionals at the forefront of knowledge and expertise. For more information about PLI's wide-ranging curriculum of pro bono programs, visit PLI.com.
www.edu/slash/pro-bono.